Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. Hi, everybody. Roy Green Show Podcasts. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on this broadcast. Also, a professor on fans and Kawhi Leonard. Will he stay? Will he go? We'll talk to Stuart Bell from Global News on Hezbollah watching Pearson Airport. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio on TMX and the British Columbia Barricades. Are they going to spring up again? And you'll hear Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party, and one of his new candidates. He'll make the announcement. When the the premiers tell the prime minister what you're doing with your C-69 and C-48 is damaging this country, and you're causing national unity issues, that's the story to me. Not Trudeau wandering around giving all of these speeches of his. So you forget about Jody Wilson-Raybould and SNC-Lavalin. And the fact that two senior members of his cabinet walked away, couldn't serve for, for him anymore in the cabinet because they questioned his ethics. We still don't know what the story is because he still hasn't green-lighted Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak. We can't forget Admiral Mark Norman, but what, you're getting all this, all this white noise from Trudeau, and it's supposed to make us forget all the other issues that matter. But I'll remind you, I'll keep reminding you, as we go through the next months and head toward October the 21st, I'll keep reminding you about issues and questions Mr. Trudeau has not dealt with that he will have to deal with somewhere along the way. Now, I just want to read the first line from uh, a statement from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe to uh, the bills that were passed on Thursday in the Canadian Senate. The passage of bills C-69 and C-48 mark a dark chapter for our energy and industrial sectors, and it is deeply concerning for our government and all those who value the economic prosperity of our nation. Premier Moe joins us on the Roy Green Show. Premier, thank you for the time. And that bottom lines it, doesn't it? That's that, that one, the first sentence, bottom lines what's going on. Well, thank you, Roy, for, for making time for us here today. You're absolutely right. This is a, uh, this is a dark day for, for our nation from an economic perspective. And I, and I think, in fairness, when you uh, talk about the, uh, the environment as well and the the, I always talk of the sustainable nature in which our industries are, are operating. Um, it's also a dark day for uh, for our global environment as well. Uh, you wrote in your statement as well, through this legislation, the federal government has sent a clear message to the Canadian and international investment community. Would you pick up on that, please? Well, they have. Uh, they've sent a clear message that they uh, essentially aren't going to make it very easy. They're rather, they're going to make it quite difficult for them to invest in in the sectors uh, in in our nation. Specifically, uh, some of them centered in Western Canada, um, but but creating wealth across the nation. And Bill C sixty nine, the the No More Pipelines Bill, of which uh, six premiers have spoken out quite concisely about. Uh, nine premiers uh, have taken issue with that bill in its pure purest form. Uh, and, and then Bill C-48, the very selective West Coast tanker ban, uh, essentially banning Western Canadian energy from getting uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, um, we, we are in an environment here, an investment climate in, in our nation uh, that is just not favorable for people to look this way. And the, This is a challenge for us because we operate in, in a global economy. Uh, so not only are foreign investments 
uh, important investment entities not looking into our nation, which is proven in our, our FDI numbers that we see. But we also see now Canadian investment uh, entities uh, looking abroad as opposed to looking right here at home uh, and investing into some of the most sustainable industries uh, in the world. And so this is troubling. Um, we're, we're really shooting ourselves in a foot, if you will, uh, from an economic perspective, from a, a jobs perspective in our communities. And that is what uh, this comes down to at the end of the day is our federal policy is is not conducive to expanding our economy, expanding our opportunities uh, and innovation on the environmental side and is really uh, and not representing Canadians well at this moment. We also run the risk of not having the money to pay for the social programs that we have and the health care that we require. And that we're, we, we say, we tell the world we're so proud of, if we're not making the money, if we're not bringing in the revenue and running $20 billion annual deficits and have a national debt that's close to $700 billion and we're not taking advantage of the energy resources we have and that are very responsibly produced to sell them to the world, to bring money into this country, to fund our economy. It's, it's, it's all backwards, Premier. It's all backwards. But the Prime Minister doesn't want to hear from you and five other Premiers. He says you're playing games. Well, I, I think, Roy, the passing of these of these two bills essentially uh, say just that. You know, I talk about the, the environmental opportunities uh, that we have. I talk about the economic opportunities uh, that we have. But the economic opportunities, and we're a believer of this in our, our province, the way that we are able to invest in a new hospitals. We're building a new children's hospital. We'll open it this year, the first of its kind in this province. Uh, we were one of two provinces that did not have such a facility. We're very proud uh, to be able to invest in that facility. Um, it, we've only been able to do that by the, by the strength of the economy that we have here in the province. Bill C-69, Bill C-48, across this nation, when you look at where the wealth has been generated and, and shared across this nation, um, essentially are saying that we will not have those social programs as we move forward in this nation because Saskatchewan, Alberta, to a larger extent, uh, other areas are not going to be able to contribute through equalization and, and through other tax measures uh, to our, our nation in Canada. And or... <laughs> They're either not going to have the wealth to contribute or they're not going to be part of the nation, quite frankly, uh, to, to, to contribute, uh, you know, as we move forward. So this is a, uh, these are troubling bills. And there's, there's a letter from six premiers uh, that were put forward, uh, that was put forward here a short while ago. I think my colleague, Premier Higgs, had said, you know, this should be taken very seriously. Um, I, I would reiterate uh, that, that response as well. I know Premier Kenny has... Uh, uh, great reservations with respect to Bill C-69 being passed with, without all of the amendments, as do uh, we and others. Um, we, we are in a very troubled time from an investment perspective, a very troubled time uh, for our nation as we look forward as to what we're actually proud of in, in this nation. Things like, you know, things like our, our medical health system that we have access to. These are all in jeopardy, uh, really, by, by the passage of these bills. Premier, would you please address the issue of national unity uh, and how this legislation and how uh, the, the, what the concern is of the six premiers? When we just focus on those two words, national unity, where's the concern? Well, when, when you look at what we are proud of as a nation, we're proud of uh, the, the strong industries that we have, the sustainable industries that we have, the wealth that those, those industries generate, how that wealth is shared across our nation, and to ensure that we have... You know, similar programs in the way of education, similar programs in the way of, of the health care offerings that we have, whether it be in, 
in uh, British Columbia or, or Atlantic Canada or, or, in, or in Canada's north or uh, along the Prairie Provinces or in, most certainly in the more, more populated areas of Quebec and Ontario. We have always uh, been this one nation that is uh, sustainably uh, producing our resources, sustainably uh, being able to sell those resources to other areas of the world and taking that wealth and investing that into the services that Canadians expect. We are no longer going to be able to do that. If we're not able to generate that wealth, we are no longer be going to be able to provide those services. Uh, we are no longer, we are no longer uh, going to be able to have the conversation in, 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 our, in our province. Are we going to be a have province or a have-not province in the years ahead? Um, we're quite likely going to be having a different conversation with the passage of these bills and the continued attack on, on the industries of agriculture and mining and manufacturing and, and, and the energy industry, the, the way we create wealth in Saskatchewan, on do we actually want to operate under Bill C-69, Bill C-48, those types of, uh, those type of regulatory environments over the next number of decades, or do we want to, or do we want to choose a different path? And that's where the challenge around, you, you know, <laughs> I think Premier Higgs again and said, are we a nation or a notion? Um, this is a, this is a real question that is coming to the people of, of Saskatchewan. You are hearing words like Western alienation, um, uh, you know, things of that nature, which are, are troublesome. And I would call on our prime minister to, to work, uh, with the provinces, like he had committed to previous to the last election, we haven't seen a lot of it in the last few years, but work with the provinces uh, to ensure that, that this is a nation that we can be proud of. And, and let's get back to working uh, together and sharing our wealth, um, but continuing to generate that wealth in areas of the nation. Premier, thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you. Take care, Roy. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. The East Coast has no tanker ban but no new pipeline. Foreign oil is flowing into Canada at the rate of 850,000 barrels a day. Foreign oil. 200,000 barrels from Saudi Arabia. Foreign oil flowing into Canada at a rate of 850,000 barrels a day on the East Coast. And we lost over $100 billion to our economy over a seven-year period, as we heard from Frank McKenna, the former premier of New Brunswick, the vice chair of the TD Bank, in a study they did. Over $100 billion we lost in just seven years because we have to sell our oil at a discount to our only customer, the United States. And is that okay with the Prime Minister? Never hear Mr. Trudeau talking about the East Coast. Never hear him talking about any interest in Energy East. And you heard the Montreal Economic Institute representative yesterday saying that as far as Premier Legault is concerned, if the Quebec Premier were to sense that there's no political cost to changing his mind and supporting Energy East, he would probably cautiously move in that direction. And we also heard from the MEI that their leisure polling shows that 66% of Quebecers favor Alberta oil. And when it comes to transporting oil, Pipelines, by far and away, to Quebecers, their favorite. Pipelines from Western Canada for the average Quebecer, by far and away preferred over trucks, train, or boats. Pipelines. I have a... No, just, just hang on a sec. Let me, um, let me ask you a question, 
at 1-800-263-2428, 1-800-263-2428. Six premiers have warned Mr. Trudeau his laws, C-69 and C-48, as well as his general attitude and approach toward Canada's energy sector, are creating the environment for national unity problems. Mr. Trudeau has scoffed at the premiers and insists they are causing a national unity crisis themselves. Over the last 10 days, we have spoken with now three of the premiers, three of the six who wrote the letter, Jason Kenney, Blaine Higgs, and just now Premier Mo Scott. Uh, Premier Scott Mo, um, here's a question for you. And I've been trying to book Justin Trudeau on the show for five years. But here's my question for you. Is Canadian unity at risk? 800-263-2428. That's simple. Is Canadian unity at risk? I know what I'm going to hear from Western Canada. I think I would know. I just want to say thank you all for walking me here. After the trade with open arms, man. It made my experience that much better. This group of guys let me do what I do on the floor. Coach Nick let me do what I do. And now we got a championship. Thank you. And like they said, enjoy this. Enjoy this moment. And have fun with it. Aha, ha, ha, ha. And there is the voice of the man we want to stay in this country, Kawhi Leonard. I want him to stay in Canada. All of us do, but Toronto Mayor John Tory and Raptors superfan Nav Badia have launched a website to give Kawhi Leonard some space. And here's a quote to all the fans all over Canada. Let him enjoy his privacy right now with his family. Just leave him alone. Let him enjoy the city. We want him to stay. We're not giving him the space which he deserves to have. And it's kawaiyoushouldstay.com. All right, you know... Most of us are sports fans, and most of us stay with a team that we've fallen in love with early in our lives, right? We seldom are persuaded by some sort of physical move to another area to support another team. We stay with who we originally supported. Jerry Seinfeld says that's we're supporting clothing because it's the, the bodies inside the clothing move all the time, but we're just supporting the clothing. Uh, to talk to us about sports fans and fan behavior is Professor Adam Earnhardt of Youngstown State University, who has studied the behavior of and the bonding to athletes by teams, uh, by fans. His book is Sports Fans, Identity and Socialization, Exploring the Fandemonium. That's one of uh, Professor Earnhardt's books. Professor Earnhardt, thank you very much uh, for the time. I'm curious, what is, what's the fandemonium? <laughs> it's a mixture of things, really, you know. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, what you were kind of leading there with, um, this idea that the Seinfeld quote is actually something we use quite often when we talk about um, how, how people become sports fans and then celebrate their fandom throughout their lives. But it really it, it comes down to identity, and a lot of times it's geographical identity. Um, and so in, the, in this case, you know, uh, it's it's interesting because I think there's also kind of a national identity tinge to this too. Usually, in the states, it's uh, you know based on a you know a 
ge- geography around a certain city. Um, but I would even argue that there's a, a, a hint of, of national identity just because this is the first Canadian team to win a national championship in the NBA. Right. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, this, the Raptors' madness in this country was generated during the NBA playoffs, and that just gave momentum, gave, gave uh, way to more momentum, and then the entire country was engaged. We don't see that yeah. all year. Canada's still a hockey nation first. Other nations are, other sports are growing, like basketball and, and soccer. But based on what you're seeing now from fans in this country, as opposed to, well, American fans, but fans in this country looking at the Raptors and Kawhi Leonard, what do you sense is happening uh, in, in Canada as far as fan support and fan interest is concerned? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, I just—I I love to see a fan base and be impressed by that fan base. And actually, um, I, I was tweeting out earlier just before I went on your show about, you know, going on your show. And, and one of the things that I put in the tweet was about how impressed I think a lot of sports fan scholars are about the Toronto fans. Um, uh, I, I think in part because um, they know how to celebrate <laughs> and they know how to celebrate responsibly. And, 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 uh, and, I, and I love the fact that you have your mayor and uh, Nav basically saying, you know, give this guy some space. And I think that because of that, because you have actually not just the mayor, but the the Toronto Raptors super fan saying, you know, let's let this guy breathe a little bit, um, it, it, and then and then have the fans actually follow behind, follow in line, fall in line, uh, is a testament to how strong and wonderful that fan base is. Let me uh, talk about fans in a general context and go back to the idea that we have all have a favorite team. For me in hockey, it's the Montreal Canadiens, and I live in Ontario, and of course that always causes problems with Toronto Maple Leaf fans. <laughs> You're a Penguins fan. I still don't think you should have Sidney Crosby. I think you should be playing in this country. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, what is it about us? What is it about uh, about our teams that we so strongly identify with? In other words, or an example is, my team wins, I win. My team loses, I'm having a bad day. Why? Yeah, What's know, going on? Well, really, you know, the, the strongest correlation you can make to it in anything else in life it's politics. I mean, okay. that's, and that's why you see a lot of comparisons between sports and politics all the time. You know, my, my, my candidate wins, my candidate loses, my team wins, my team loses. And really, your, your life kind of, in, in some cases, especially for superfans, their life kind of revolves around that. Um, we have these, these terms that we use uh, in, in our research called uh, uh, berging and corfing. And really, they're just acronyms, but berging means basking in the reflective glow. So when your team wins, you go out and you celebrate. You wear that team's colors the next day or the jerseys or whatever. And uh, But but Corfing stands for uh, cutting off reflective failure. So basically you're you're basically saying, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> my team lost or those guys lost. Actually, you try to find ways to kind of separate yourself from that, that loss, that defeat. And we see fans do this all the time. So um, now... That said, there's also a lot of people that um, their entire identity is wrapped up in a team because of family, because of their social circles, because of, you know, they've, they've been right. raised to be, 
you know, Montreal Canadiens fans, That's and they've right. been raised around hockey, so of course they're going to be lifelong fans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was watching um, uh, World Cup soccer a couple of tournaments ago, and you know the British broadcasters have such a laconic way of broadcasting, they'll just say the names of the players quietly. They'll say, it'll say like, Smith, Wilson, <laughs> Robinson, right? So they're doing yeah. this, and the camera zooms in on two fans, two young women in the stands, and they have their faces painted with their nation's flag, and clearly their nation isn't doing well because the tears, you can see the tears washing away the nation's flags. And the British broadcaster says very quietly into the microphone, and this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and but it is know, supposed to be fun. It, it is, because for every, but you know, for every failure, there is some success along the way. And, right. you, and you kind of live through that success, you live vicariously through the wins and losses of that team and that athlete. And so in some ways, it actually brings, it. and in, in, in for some people, it gets a little off the rails, but for some people, it brings some, this idea of, of uh, self-worth, of um, you know, motivation. So I mean, there, there's a lot of things that are kind of wrapped up in the psyche of the sports fan, and it's, it's not all one person, not all one sports fan is painted the same way. And the teams bring us into the uh, arena, if you will. You think of all the Jurassic Parks that sprung up across this country as the Raptors were winding their way through the playoffs. And uh, and, and the Seattle uh, Seahawks, another example, the 12th fan. The people in that stadium really think they're they're playing on the team. They really think they're team members. Yeah, it's true. You know, I, I got to tell you, it's, what's funny. I'm I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, and um, I'm actually calling you from Canada right now. It's just, I've just brought my kids across the border here in uh, Niagara Falls. Well, welcome. And so, yeah, thanks. Yeah, we've been here for a total of two hours, and I'm <laughs> so total of two hours. And can I tell you? I mean, I have run into Raptors fans all over this place. I mean, there and, and you can see people that are just very, you know, like living. And celebrating that that team, but also celebrating what again what I think is a lot of national identity um, through that win. Well, Premier, uh, uh, I was just talking to our Premier Professor. Thank you very much for the time. I think uh, one of the things that we'll agree we all have a common enemy, and that con- common enemy is the referee. Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the guys in the stripe. No, the bad right. guys. <laughs> They're always the bad guys. <laughs> Sports fans, identity and socialization. Exploring the Fandemonium by Professor Adam Earnhardt from Youngstown State University. Thank you, Professor. Have a great visit in Canada. Thanks. Anytime, man. Bye-bye. Adam Earnhardt. Reading a story, a global news story, got, really got my attention by Stuart Bell, national online journalist, investigative for Global News, starts a Hezbollah operative collected detailed information about Toronto's Pearson Airport, according to a report circulated by Canada's Air Safety Agency and obtained by Global News. Stuart Bell joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Stuart, thank you very much for the time. And would you remind us out of the gate about Hezbollah, what they represent and what they've done? Well, Hezbollah is uh, it, it's, uh, considered a terrorist organization under Canadian law. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated group because... Um, in addition to being an armed militia that's devoted to uh, its own ideological cause, uh, they do have elected members of parliament in Lebanon. They control uh, areas of Lebanon. Um, they exist as sort of a, a state within the state within Lebanon. And in addition to that, they are um, very closely aligned with the Iranian regime. 
Uh, they're funded, trained, uh, otherwise supported by Iran, um, and uh, serve to some fun- to some degree as kind of a proxy force for Iran, okay. um, particularly overseas. They've been known to um, carry out attacks in different countries that are believed to be done at the behest of uh, the Iranian regime. So this brings us to Ali Karani, the uh, individual you're writing about, a sleeper agent who is based in the United States, also a naturalized American, who seven times visited Pearson Airport and gathered security information. Uh, and he had help from a Pearson Airport employee. What, what do we know about this? Well, there's a branch of Hezbollah called the Islamic Jihad Organization, which is the external operations wing of Hezbollah. They're responsible for uh, for attacks uh, outside and, uh, and other operations outside of uh, Lebanon. And uh, Ali Karani was recruited into this organization. Um, he was told initially just to lay low and obtain U.S. citizenship, which he did. Uh, and then he was very quickly, once he got his passport, sent on a variety of assignments. And part of that involved collecting intelligence or surveillance on uh, Canada and the United States, including JFK Airport and Pearson Airport in Toronto. And the reason that uh, he told the FBI, the reason he was told to do that, was at the time uh, Hezbollah was very keen to retaliate for the assassination of the leader, the founder of the Islamic Jihad organization, Imad Mugnia, who'd been killed uh, in Damascus, um, probably believed to be by Israeli agents, possibly U.S., nobody really knows. Uh, Hezbollah really wanted to retaliate, and they were collecting information, uh, surveillance, on looking at different ways they could do that, possibly within the United States. So, so now, what do we make of this? Because uh, thought I had was uh, where there's one Karani, there's more than one Karani, and and you write in your story, Karani shared a contact list of men in Canada, uh, in Ontario and Alberta. Well, if you look even as recently as Friday's uh, CSIS annual report, you'll see mention again of Hezbollah. Uh, this has been a recurring thing. Uh, we always hear these vague mentions by the security agencies of. Hezbollah activity in Canada, and in fact, they have been very active in Canada, and they remain active here. Um, primarily, they've been using Canada as a place for raising money. Um, they've also, to some extent, purchased material here and shipped it off to Lebanon, and they use Canada to kind of spread their influence in various ways. Um, this, What's interesting about this uh this case is it shows a kind of an escalation in the sense that we now know that in addition to using Canada kind of as a base for supporting what they're doing elsewhere, um, they've been conducting surveillance of possible targets in Canada. Uh, So it really marks uh, an escalation in terms of our understanding of the threat that Hezbollah poses. So is there, I don't suppose they'd say it, but is it reasonable to assume there's official concern about a terror attack by Hezbollah in this country? Well, it's it's hard to say. Um, you know, uh, these this surveillance was conducted some years ago, but again, getting back to what we were initially talking about, um, uh, Hezbollah is, to a large extent, a wing of the Iranian regime. And whenever there are tensions between the U.S. and Iran, um, 
that's an occasion when Hezbollah might be tasked to look for ways of um, trying to inflict damage on the U.S. And whether that involves um, uh, attacking Canada, I don't know, but uh, the Ali Karani talked repeatedly about using Canada as kind of a launching pad for bringing both people and um, weapons into the U.S. And that, of course, you know, were there to be an attack in the U.S. that was found to have uh, come through Canada, you can imagine the the damage that could be done. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, everyone's aware of the tension uh, between Iran and the United States now. Um, the shooting down of the drone, President Trump saying he was prepared to attack and then uh, saying, no, it would have been disproportionate. And now there's talk about a potential cyber attack having been carried out by the United States against Iran. So all all of it is, is unsettling, but it's an unsettled world. Stuart, thanks so much for this, and thanks for everything you do. Okay, thank you, Russ. Bye-bye. Stuart Bell, uh, national online journalist, investigative global news. He's one of the very, very best, one of the very best in this in this business and keeping us informed on these international developments. And it is a very uneasy time, particularly given the uh, tensions between Iran and the United States. Premier Saskatchewan has very strong feelings about C-69 and C-48. As uh, Premier Kenny mentioned, that's uh, more than six premiers. If you consider the fact that uh, Premier Legault of Quebec is no great fan of uh, C-69, it's more than six premiers who've warned Justin Trudeau that C-69 and C-48 are problematic and problematic to this country. So we'll be talking to uh, Premier Mo later on. Mike Smith uh, from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio is so generous to us with his time on weekends. I, I'm starting to feel guilty. Um, <laughs> I am, Mike. I have to send you a check or something. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Roy. Anytime, man. Anytime. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, now, so, now, so now in British Columbia, you're at ground zero for all the talk about TMX and now Bill C-69 and C-48 yeah. Um, so let me start, and I read your columns with great interest. What's the on-the-ground response, first of all, to the TMX announcement by Trudeau? Well, you know, it's really interesting listening to Jason Kenney there from the Alberta Premier. He's, he's kind of preaching to the choir there in Alberta with such solid support for the pipeline and, and the oil sands there in, in his province. Here in British Columbia, I mean, you're right, our, our reputation here is much different that we're a hotbed of environmental activism here where there have been polls that indicate there are thousands of people willing to lie down in front of bulldozers to stop the construction of a pipeline. I mean, even the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, was arrested for blocking a pipeline construction crew. So that's the reputation. But you know what? I think if you drill down on some of the polling that's been done now, you always got to have a caveat. Sometimes these pollsters are wrong. But there has been a steady stream of opinion polls in British Columbia that show consistently that a majority of British Columbians support this pipeline. And that includes in Metro Vancouver, and which is supposed to be the hotbed of anti-pipeline opposition. And if you if you look closely at the numbers, certainly there is more opposition in Vancouver to the pipeline than there is, say, in the north and rural interior of, of the province, but not by much. I mean, if you take a look at a recent Ipsos poll, it showed that 58% of the 
of residents in Metro Vancouver support the pipeline. Um, I actually make that 59%, Roy, and compared to 63% in the in the regions of the province. So the numbers are are pretty close. So I think what Justin Trudeau has done is he's taken a good look at these numbers and figured that approving the Trans Mountain Pipeline, as we saw last week, is not a bad thing for him, um, and it could be uh, beneficial for him in an election. Even though that may seem counterintuitive to people when they think of British Columbia's reputation, there still is a lot of support for this pipeline here, despite what people might think. Sure. So he uh, approves construction for TMX the day after they declare climate change an emergency in Parliament, yeah. and two days before C-69 and C-48 make their way through the Senate. So he's balancing one against the other. He's, right. he's ob- They're obviously reading the polls, and they're saying, where can we squeeze down the middle and squeeze out the opposition? Yeah, I mean, you can have it, like, Trudeau is playing it both ways so it's kind of like you can have your cake and eat it too so we can have a carbon tax and we can have stricter environmental protections uh and we can have a pipeline too so we can have it both ways whereas his opponents are generally divided one way or the other i mean the conservatives are pro-pipeline but anti-carbon tax and the ndp and the greens are the other way around it's only trudeau's got kind of straddling both sides of it so i i think that's his plan is to try and be all things to all voters now, there could be certainly a backlash among some, some voters in British Columbia who are firmly opposed to this pipeline, because there is some significant opposition to it. But if you take a look at where the, the opposition to the pipeline is concentrated in British Columbia, and, and specifically in Vancouver, a lot of that opposition is in liberal-held ridings, but they're ridings that the liberals won huge last time around. So consider, for example, uh, Vancouver Centre, Hedy Fry the uh, long-serving liberal MP there. She has been the MP for 26 years. She has won eight elections in a row, including four years ago. She just a romp, easy win. And now she has said publicly that she's a little worried about this pipeline because there's a lot of people in her riding who are opposed to it, and that's that's probably true. But is she really going to lose a seat that she typically wins by, like, 20 points every election? There's lots of ridings like that in, in British Columbia where... There's pipeline opposition, but the liberals typically win those ridings big anyway. And I think maybe the liberals have calculated they're going to hang. They may lose some support, but they're going to hang on to these key seats that they got here. You know, Mike, what it really points out is what we've been saying a long time, and that is there's so much calculating that goes into an election. It goes so much calculating about what's beneficial to the party as opposed to necessarily what's beneficial to a province or the country when politicians make decisions. What's good for us? And then maybe, hopefully, it'll be good for the province of the country as well. That becomes the mindset that is directed toward the, 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 the political classes, if you will. So let me step away from them for just a moment and ask okay. you, what are you hearing from First Nations? What are Indigenous peoples in British Columbia saying about this? Well, First Nations in British Columbia, just like the general Canadian population as a whole, are divided on the project. So some First Nations are vehemently opposed to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and very significantly some of the coastal First Nations where the pipeline terminus is located and that kind of thing are very opposed to it, and they have gone to court to fight it and will likely go to court to fight it again. Uh, They worry very much about the a major spill of diluted bitumen into the marine environment, uh, harming uh, salmon, shellfish, all the, and the shellfish that they've been collecting for tens of thousands of years. So they're against it. But there's a lot of First Nations are support it. 
And one interesting thing that has developed here recently is a lot of the First Nations along the pipeline route that Kinder Morgan, the, the company that owned the project previously before the federal government bought it, a lot of, a lot of them had signed benefit-sharing agreements with the company on the pipeline route, and they support it. But a lot of them were hesitant to be identified. They didn't want to go out and publicly support the pipeline. Now you're seeing more and more First Nations actually stepping forward to say, look, we support this pipeline, and we actually want to buy it from the government, and we want to make money from it to support our elders, to build housing, to uh, pay for scholarships for our kids. And I think that's interesting that more and more First Nations are now finding the confidence in the project to step forward and say, you know, we don't want to hide anymore. We're, we're going to step forward and say we support this thing. And I think Trudeau loves that. I think if Trudeau can somehow stamp this thing as a, as a project that's got First Nations partnership, maybe it helps them sell it to some voters who are uh, undecided. Do you have a few minutes more, Mike? Absolutely. Okay, we'll come back with Mike Smith uh, from the Vancouver province, one of this country's foremost columnists, political columnists and talk show host on CKNW Radio in Vancouver, our uh, chorus radio station there, great radio station. And uh, I, I want to talk to Mike about another column that he wrote, Pipeline Reality Check, bitumen being shipped through BC already. And uh, we'll talk to Mike about that when we come back on The Roy Green Show. Mike Smith is with me, columnist for the <laughs> Vancouver province and talk show host at CKNW. You know what happens? You get you start the, the mouth starts to work before the brain has said, go. <laughs> I hear you. That happens to me more often these days. <laughs> I, uh, I really enjoyed your column where you remind the premier of British Columbia, Premier Horgan, that uh, bitumen's already being shipped through British Columbia and Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline. And so what are you exactly complaining about, Premier? Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's interesting because don't forget the Trans Mountain Pipeline project is, is an expansion project, so there's already a pipeline in the ground already. And the, 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 pro, the proposal is to put another one in, uh, lay another one beside it. So the one that's in the ground right now has already got this terrible stuff flowing through it already. I mean, this, the government here says they're worried about a spill of diluted, diluted bitumen the, the heavy crude from the Alberta oil sands, they're worried about this stuff being getting into the marine environment and potentially sinking uh, and, just, and having a devastating impact on the B.C. economy. So the B.C. government's position is that if this stuff was to spill into our water, it would cost tens of thousands of jobs potentially in fisheries, tourism, over a billion dollars of economic damage. That's what the government says here, if this stuff got in the water. Well, reality check time, the stuff is already going through the pipe. Right now, it's already being loaded onto tankers, and it's already going through our waters now. So w if the government's so worried about this, the potential devastating impact of a spill, why are they not demanding that it all be shut down? Why, why don't you have John Horgan standing up and demanding that Justin Trudeau stop all of it immediately? to cut the risk to zero, they're not doing that. What they're saying is that the existing flow of bitumen is already federally permitted, so they can't do anything about it. What they can do is ask for better safety spill response measures to be put in place to protect us. And that's what the federal government is proposing to do with the expanded pipeline, that they would put another pipeline in there and you would have greater spill response. You'd have more 
Uh, you'd have more pilots uh, piloting the ships through tricky waters. You'd have more tugboats. You'd have more uh, spill response capacity. So, you know, there is, I think, some hypocrisy there that at the same time while the government is opposing the expanded pipeline, they're not opposing the existing pipeline because the same stuff's going through the pipe now. Yeah, Mike, I'm going to point one finger at Horgan and another finger at Trudeau, and I'm going to point then both of them toward Eastern Canada and say, look, there's no tanker ban there. Trudeau offers zero pipeline support for Alberta oil heading to New Brunswick, as in Energy East. New Brunswick's got a massive refinery, the Irving Refinery in St. John. And the government's perfectly fine with the Trudeau Liberals uh, to import 850, or not the Trudeau Liberals, but the, the government's the Liberals are fine with 850,000 barrels of foreign oil being imported into Eastern Canada each and every day to be right. refined in New Brunswick. You know, talk about cynical political manipulation. It's right there in front of you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy all over the place. Like, I thought one of the strongest talking points that Jason Kenney had this week was as he was uh, criticizing the, the ban on oil tankers off the north coast of British Columbia, which was passed by the but this week, saying, well, where's the, where's the ban on the east coast? You know, he was saying that he, just, he was just in the Bay of Fundy uh, the other day, the, uh, one of the largest oil refineries in the world, and there's 200,000 barrels of Saudi Arabia oil coming off super tankers there every day. So, you know, you don't see Trudeau saying we want to ban on oil tankers in the Bay of Fundy or the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. You know, he wouldn't dare damage the Quebec economy uh, on that way, but, you know, he's quite pleased. He's say, saying, well, we got to ban it on the North Coast. I mean, what's the difference? I mean, if there's a spill on either coast, it'd still be just as bad, wouldn't it? Well, you so, know, I mean, if, he, yeah. if, he, if he were to speak out against uh, what's going on in Quebec or on the East Coast, it could cost him votes. Exactly, right? So, I mean, there's, there's so many political implications here. I, I, I think, like I said, the, the Trudeau is hoping that by backing this one pipeline and going to the wall on this one, it'll show that he's, he's not totally against, uh, against the, the industry and on both sides. He wants to be on both sides of it. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy here going both ways at the federal and the provincial level. And I, and I think it should be pointed out to people, and, and, and people do know. I think it, it's very evident. You know, it's very difficult to hide this kind of hypocrisy on it. Well, sure. it is. You know, uh, I spoke yesterday with a representative from the Montreal Economic Institute, and they last December uh, commissioned a poll through Leger asking Quebecers, not the government, not the elites, asking Quebecers, what do you support? What do you want? So by majority, I think 53% of Quebecers said they'd like to see their own oil developed through shale and fracking and so on. If that's not possible, 66% are in favor of uh, Alberta oil. Uh, when it comes to over, I think it was 7% who were favoring foreign oil, maybe less than 7%. Now, when it came to pipelines, 45% of Quebecers favored pipelines bringing oil from Western Canada. 13%, I'm going from memory here, but 13% were in favor of trucks I think 11% uh, in favor of uh, train shipments. Given Lac Megantic, I'm surprised it's a little 11%. And then 9% favored ships. So you got 66% of Quebecers, the average person who's just trying to get through life, saying, hey, I'm perfectly fine with Alberta oil coming, into, coming through this province in a pipeline. Yeah, no, that's very, those are very interesting numbers. And I think it's uh, reflective of the fact that maybe counterintuitive in a lot of people's minds about about this the support for these type of developments and and jobs and economic opportunity that most people feel that maybe are not as loud 
as some of the uh, op- opponents that get most of the attention. I mean, if you if you drill down in some of those polling numbers we talked about earlier in British Columbia, with the uh, very clear majority support for the pipeline, and you go look even closer at the numbers, there is much higher strong support for the pipeline as opposed to strong opposition to it as well. So the, there's majority support for the pipeline in B.C., and uh, very strong support uh, overshadows the strong opposition to the project as well. This is going to be a very, well, it, this is uh, really not necessary saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is going to be a fascinating four months heading toward oh. the 21st of October, and we are in for twists and turns we can't even imagine yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a barn burner. For sure. Mike, it's always great talking to you. Thank you very much for the time. Anytime, Roy. Mike Smith from uh, the Vancouver province and from CKNW Radio, one of the very, very best. So, yeah, so we have uh, the – there's been all this concern about TMX. Oh, no, we can't build it. No, we can't. Uh, now, yeah, okay, so now we've done what we were supposed to do, what the federal court told us to do. So we're going to construct it. had nothing to do with any – Polling research to suggest that a significant percentage of British Columbians were okay with the pipeline. No, 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 no. The Liberals just came to this conclusion by themselves. Phooey, as Mike said. It's a political consideration. And then in the same week, we declare climate change to be an emergency in Parliament. I think to Ms. McKenna, everything is an emergency. And on Thursday, C-69 and C-48 were passed in the Senate to counterbalance uh, those who might be objecting to TMX. Meanwhile, again, on the East Coast, there's no restriction whatsoever. None. None. No pipe. No. no oh, wait a second. Oh, no, no. The Premier of Quebec doesn't want it. That's right. The Premier of Quebec doesn't want Energy East. Although the MEI representative told us yesterday, if they could figure out a way for it to not cost votes, maybe he'd change. Oh, my God. We are joined now by the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier. And we're going to talk to Mr. Bernier about uh, a number of pieces of legislation that the whole country is talking about, and as well about some of his candidates, or one in particular. But uh, I understand there's personal congratulations in order as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> congratulations uh, on, on the nuptials. Uh, are, you, are, you married, are you married now or are you going to get married? I, next? I, will, I would be next Saturday. I would be next Saturday. And uh, that's, uh, that's a nice thing for me. Yes, I'm very happy. <laughs> well, all the best uh, to you and your bride for the, for the rest of your lives together. I think it's great news. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. Uh, how ready is the People's Party of Canada for the federal election? I have to ask you, it's a two-part question. Do you think you're being taken seriously by the national media? Yeah, first, the first part of your question, the answer is no. I don't think that they are taking us seriously, but uh, they will have to because, you know, we would be uh, able to have uh, 338 candidates in every riding before uh, mid-July. Right now, we have 275 candidates. So after only nine months, we are able to have great candidates all across the country that believe in our freedom ideas. And the most important also, we need to have riding associations all across the country. And that's what we have, because we have people that are helping the party to be built in different ridings. So that's going very, very well. And I'm so happy that we'll be ready for the next election. You can count on us. Now, uh, you're a political veteran. You understand uh, politics better than most people. 
It's uh, it's difficult to uh, get started with a political party uh, fairly late in the in an election cycle. You didn't have much time. You don't have much time, and according to the polling, uh, that you're you're not showing that well at this point, uh, Monsieur Bernier. Are you expecting really to be able to get the message out and get Canadians to say, "I'm going to give these guys a try and these men and women a try"? Yes, because uh, like you said, we are nationally at around four percent, and after nine months. But in certain regions in the country, we're more than that. Uh, in Alberta, uh, some places, we are at 10, uh, 15%. Uh, near Quebec City, we are at 15%. And our expectation is after the national debate, because I will be part of the national debate, the only condition for me as the leader of the People's Party is to have two, 304 candidates on 338. And like I just told you, we'll have 338 candidates all, all across the country. So we'll be part of the national debate, and that will help us a lot. Uh, that's uh, our big challenge. Uh, people, they, we need to be out there in the national media and the news. And I think uh, that's what we will work on during the summer and in the beginning of the official campaign in September. On Friday, you were in Toronto, and you introduced uh, Renata Ford, the uh, the uh, the wife of the late mayor of Toronto, Mr. Rob Ford, as a candidate for the People's Party of Canada. Speak to that, please. Oh, yeah, we're very happy. Renata uh, uh, called us a couple of uh, weeks ago, and she said, I may be interested to run for the People's Party. So we had a nice uh, conversation and a nice discussion about why she wants to be in politics. And and she was always in politics because, you know, uh, she her, her late husband uh, was uh, very popular in Ontario, in Toronto, and she was uh, helping him and working with him. Uh, but now for her, it's the first time to be uh, in front and to be an official candidate. And I'm very pleased because she shares our real conservative free market values and uh, she's ready to fight. But also uh, it is helping us also because she's well known and uh, we have more coverage in the national media. And with her, she'll be a star candidate in Ontario. I can tell you that. Let me ask you about a couple of it. Let's go political here and, and issues that matter to this country, really significantly important to this country. And what's happened in the last week is a microcosm of that. On Monday, the uh, Trudeau Liberals declared in Parliament that climate change is a, an, a, an emergency. On Tuesday, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet announced construction of TMX would begin. On Thursday, and I've been speculating to counterbalance that art, that announcement, C-69 and C-48 were passed through the Senate. What do you make of all of these movements of the past week, and where does the People's Party of Canada stand on C-48, C-69, TMX, and climate change as an emergency? Yeah, first of all, uh, we are for pipelines and the TMX and all other pipelines by the private sector. That's the most important. And we're the only political party that um, uh, is ready to use the constitution, our constitution, to be able to build pipeline in this country. Now with the bill C-69 and C-48, uh, it's a no pipelines bill. It will be very difficult to uh, build a private sector pipelines in this country. And we need one in uh, Eastern Canada. We need one in uh, Western Canada. And the way to do that is to use the Constitution, Section 9210. And actually, in Canada, we use that section more than 300 times when we have a national infrastructure that is uh, crossing uh, all provinces, that is interprovincial 
And so let's use that. And yes, I said that in French and in English in Calgary. If we have a province like Quebec or BC where the politicians uh, don't want any uh, pipelines, you can impose a pipeline because when you use that section in the Constitution, the uh, authorization for a pipeline, it, it will become 100% federal. And yes, after consultation, we must be able to go ahead and, if necessary, use the Constitution to impose a pipeline. I'm the only leader to say that. And um, I said that in Quebec, and as you know, in Quebec, the Quebec government said there's no social acceptability for pipelines. That's coming from the Quebec government. But I can tell you, the population in Quebec, they know that it's safer for the environment, safer for the population when you transport oil and gas by pipelines than by train or, or, or trucks. So we have a, a very different position than the Conservative and other uh, political party in Ottawa. We're ready to use the Constitution for that, and we have the courage to say that to the population also. So, yes, we're for pipelines, and we know how to be sure that we'll be able to be, build the private sector pipelines in this country. So about the climate change uh, emergency, <laughs> it's crazy, you know, there's no emergency. The climate is always changing and it will change in the future also. Uh, it's the normality uh, when you speak about climate that the climate is, is changing. And, you know, I don't want to impose more costs or more regulation on Canadians. The Trudeau government, they impose, as you know, a carbon tax. I call their program tax and uh, tax and rebate. They will tax Canadian and they are saying, telling us that we will have uh, more rebates than the tax that we will pay. And, and, and uh, Mr. Bernie, I have about 20 seconds, so go ahead, please. Yeah, and, and the conservative, conservative, it's tax and subsidies. So both parties want to uh, tax Canadian and we are, we are the only party who said we won't sign the Paris Accord. Uh, it's a shared jurisdiction, the environment, and if provinces want to do something on climate change, they can do it. But us at the federal level, no Paris Accord, no tax, nothing on climate change. We think that there's no emergency there. Okay. Thank you for joining us. All the best to you going forward personally, and I'll have you back on the show before the election. I appreciate that, Roy. Thank you. Have a nice day. All the best. Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.